Please be seated. Would you pray with me? Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. God, teach us how to worship. Teach us when we sing, not just to sing a song like that as if it's a pop song or just something that has a melody that we can flow along with. But instead, Lord, may our hearts say those words to you. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God, who is gracious and loving and forgiving. Thank you, God. Today, Lord, as we talk about worship, Lord, may we understand that our worship here is not the only part of worship, that you call us in our worship to go out into the world and to shine your light of love and grace to others. And so, Lord, help us today to open our hearts to a fresh anointing of your spirit, Lord. You, Jesus, talk about the living water in the Gospel of John. May we receive this living water that it may quench our thirsts today. Whatever we brought in with us, whatever is weighing us down, whatever sin or regret or grief, may your living water quench that, Lord, and remind us of your presence and your peace that surpasses our comprehension. To that end, Lord, I pray that you would pour upon me the gift of preaching, that my very frail and broken and human words might, by the power of your Holy Spirit, become your living word, uniquely crafted for each and every one of our hearts. We pray this with great confidence, for we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last Sunday was such an amazing worship service if you were here. It was such a joy. It was great to be reminded of our Presbyterian heritage and where we fit into kind of the larger trajectory of church history. And then in the heart of the sermon, I reminded us that a key element of our worship is listening for God to speak through the sermon, the preaching of his word, and seeking to live out what God has spoken and to live that out in our daily lives as we go out the door and go on with our living. This was the scripture I preached from last week. It's from 1 John. It says, this is how we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Later in the passage, John shares what God's commandment is, to love one another well. Or, as the great commandment says, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We also learn from 1 John that what cripples us in loving our neighbor is our sin. And so we must regularly face that sin within us and confess it. As John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from everything we've done wrong. In other words, we can have a fresh start. Whatever regrets you've come in, whatever sin in your past may haunt you, that is not of God. Not if you know Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood is sufficient. We were just singing that, right? It is sufficient for us. And so we, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from everything we've done wrong so that we are renewed and refreshed to be able to go out into the world and love our neighbor. But I also talked about how true confession includes repentance which literally means to turn and walk a new direction in life. 
as we closed last week's message, I challenged us to continue to faithfully worship God as we lived out during the week what we learned in here, right? In during our worship. So you might think about if that even crossed your mind, right, as you went out and lived your life. Those are good questions for us to ask because many of us, moi included, are not very used to doing that all the time, right? We're not always used to going out and saying, okay, what are the implications of that for me in how I treat that person that just cut me off as I was trying to exit 59 onto 610, which is closed right now, by the way. Um, so this week, I wanted us to dig deeper into this, this idea that we carry it out into the world, the message of God. Um, you know, what does it mean for us to live our daily life and that it's tied directly to our worship of God? Mark Laberton, in his book, The Dangerous Act of Worship, writes, Worship turns out to be the dangerous act of waking up to God and to the purposes of God in the world and then living lives that actually show it. Worship turns out to be the dangerous act of waking up to God and to God's purposes in the world and then living lives that actually show it. Really powerful. Mark is reaffirming last week's message, right? That as important as our prayers, our singing, our hearing God speak to us through his word is, worship doesn't end when we walk out the door. Now, here's how Isaiah expresses this challenge in chapter 58. And this is God talking. He says, for day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. Yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. This is the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Wow. Every time I read this passage, my face looks like this, at least on the inside, right? It really is. That's kind of a right-up-in-your-nose sort of statement from God. He's not, he's not pulling any punches. And he's saying clearly that everything we do in this room, it doesn't matter much to him if we go out and we act the way everyone else is acting out there, if you know what I mean. It's actually kind of scary when you think, it's like, wait a minute, this is really serious stuff. Why do you think God gets so pointed about us not obeying his command to loose the chains of injustice, liberate the oppressed, clothe the unclothed, and share food with the hungry. Because this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. Christy read earlier the words of Jesus at his public inauguration of his ministry in Luke chapter 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, Proclaim release of the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This 
is Jesus' mission statement. It is what Jesus fulfilled in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. Every person Jesus saved from then until today included, is included in this passage. We are the poor. We are the prisoners caught in our own sin. We are the ones oppressed by our own sin and the sin of the world. And Jesus came to save us, to redeem us, to rescue us from our bondage. This is the good news of the gospel. And in Isaiah, when God commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, God is calling us to embrace Jesus' way of life. Do you see the similarities between the Isaiah passage and Jesus? Now, of course, Jesus was reading from Isaiah, right? At that time, a different chapter. But these themes keep coming up. This is how we are to love. And loving is really important to God. We can't just come in here and love God and go out and hate people in the world. Um, As hard as it can be to love sometimes. So what would happen in our world of influence? And each of us have a world of influence. What would happen in our world of influence if our worship included, as Mark Laberton said, waking up to God and to the purposes of God in the world and then living lives that actually show it? In today's world, that's a high bar challenge. How do we live lives that show God's purposes in the face of this eye-for-an-eye world with all of its hyper-divisiveness cancel culture and hatred with all the wars, with all the power grabs, the vitriol, the self-righteous judgment of the other. That's the world we're living in, right? We're swimming in that when we're out there. How do we represent the light of God's story and love and redemption in the midst of a dark world filled with sin and self-centeredness run amok? We look to Jesus and his teaching, his life, for advice as a role model. And I think this is what God's trying to get at, right? The reason he's so adamant in Isaiah, eventually he sends Jesus to show us. He's like, okay, let me show you what I mean about loving your neighbor. Because the world hasn't changed much, really, since Jesus was here. These are the same sin obstacles Jesus faced when he came to save us. So what were his priorities in how to treat others? Well, the Gospels tell us his life and his teaching embodied loving others unconditionally, even our enemies, turning the other cheek, walking the extra mile, and we learn from the parable of the sheep and goats, my personal favorite, not, that at the final judgment... How we've treated the least of these appears to be a serious criteria in the last judgment since Jesus makes clear that how we treated the least of these is how we treated him. That's when it gets personal, right? God's image is in every human being. And so how we treat them is how we treat God. Gareth W. Eisnoggle who I hadn't heard of before, from National Presbyterian Church, writes this. Worship moves us to leadership. Acts of justice, equity, and peace in this world. Intervention for the poor, the homeless, and those who do not know God. The abused, the refugee, and the alien. We cling to our safety too often. Rather than venturing into the world to create safety for other people. For most of us, 
all that I've said in the last five minutes regarding God's command that we are to live servant-hearted, other-focused lives is a review, isn't it? We know this. We've known the teaching of Scripture for a long time. So what's the problem? Why do we have such a difficult time living as Jesus calls us to live? For me, as I really thought about this and prayed about it, it all comes down to the heart. It's so easy for me to allow my self-interest to harden my heart towards someone in need. My self-interest to harden my heart towards someone in need. The sinful part of me is so quick to judge. And when I ask myself why, the answer is oftentimes I'm looking for an excuse not to have to help them. Inside, my self-centeredness, my sinfulness is looking for an excuse not to have to help them. So I find something about them that I can judge, that I can rationalize as the reason for their predicament, that I can say to myself, That is why it's their fault that they're standing in that position today. And then I can use that as an excuse not to do what God is commanding me to do. And truth be told, when I allow such prejudices to win out, my actions look exactly like the world around me. When I allow that part of me, the sinful part of me, to win out, My actions look exactly like the world around me. I've lost my witness. And more, according to Isaiah, I've tainted my worship of God. In losing the opportunity to obey God's commandment to love my neighbor. Now, when I say that, it doesn't mean every situation is simple. It doesn't mean that we always know what to do. You're not to give every person who asks a dollar or a 20 or whatever that is... This is what I think it means. I do think there are times when we are called to do that. This is what I think it means minimally, that we have to respect and show dignity to every human being. We have to show respect and dignity to every human being. So if there is a person asking for money and you don't feel called to give them money, maybe that's that day for you then what do you do? Well, you roll down the window and you say, look, I don't have anything to give you today, but what's your name? I just want you to know I'm going to say a prayer for you. And it may not be what they want, but it honors their humanity, who they are. That's the first step. That's something we can do. And it doesn't, right, it doesn't require half the day of figuring out how to really help someone in a very complicated situation. If any of what I'm confessing resonates with you, how do we get there? How do we get, um, the difficult question is, how do we muster the change in our heart to obey God's will? It begins and ends with heartfelt prayer. In John, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as living water. I prayed that over us this morning as we began. In John 4, in John 7, uh, this water can quench our thirsts. I I use this all the time in prayer. If you don't, I encourage you to experiment. We have thirsts, our selfishness, our selfish desires, our anger, um, our fears, our anxieties. We have these things that I liken them to thirsts. They can drive me. And so I ask that the Holy Spirit fill me with his living water and quench those thirsts. The thirst, in this case, of self-centeredness, the thirst of judgment, 
the thirst of prejudice. May we pray that the Holy Spirit's living water quenches the thirst of our sin and creates a heart anxious to obey God's commands. And this can happen literally as you're pulling up and you're like, oh darn, I'm the first one in line at the light where that homeless guy's standing, right? What do I do now? Say a prayer. Ask God to quench that thirst. You don't have to completely engage that person. Just treat them with respect. As we see in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the way God demonstrates his love for you and me is even while we were his enemies. Scripture says this in Romans 5. Even while we were sinners, guilty and totally deserving of judgment, he was willing to sacrifice everything to redeem us from the self-inflicted bondage that we found ourselves in. And that's what he's asking us to do to others, even if they're guilty, even if they are our enemy. Even if. How would the Palestinian-Israeli thing change if this were in play? You don't have to do everything. Just treat them with human dignity and respect. Right? And I know in this case it would have had to start with Hamas, right? Who didn't treat Israel with, right? All of it is tricky, But somewhere, somebody has to begin treating the other side with human dignity. How would that... It's the only answer I know of, right? What we're seeing now is just an eye for an eye. And that's what an eye for an eye leads to for a thousand years. So may we pray for someone in leadership on both sides to be able to treat the other minimally with some level of human dignity. So God expects this of us just because he's done it for us. He expects this of us, right? That any one of us who live in his kingdom, that we embody the love upon which the kingdom stands. His kingdom is a kingdom of love. For how we live the day in and day out lives that we live is central to our worship. This is part of our worship of God. As Mark Laberton says, worship turns out to be the dangerous act of waking up to God and to the purposes of God in the world and then living lives that actually show it. So may we experiment in our worship this week. Experiment in loving our neighbor, even neighbors who are guilty, who don't look like us or seem to be deserving. As Jesus says, it's not up to us to judge. God will take care of that. God will take on the burden of judgment so that that sets us free to worship as God commands as we live a life of love. May we experiment this week showing kindness and love to each and every person we meet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.